0: Uh, tonight we're in Chapter 1, and pacing-wise, um, don't know how long it's going to take us You know, get through Chapter 1. I've broken it into two sections. Um, as Sister Peggy said, this is the red letter edition. It's all in color, uh, but there's a reason for that. So we'll take a look at that um, as we go through it tonight. But um, just as a reminder from last week, so we're just going to kind of jump right in here. Reminder from last week, uh, Luke is the author of this, and it's a lot of internal evidence that suggests that one of the clearest internal evidences we're going to look at tonight um, in this first portion that we've kind of divided into a table. So in Luke 24, and we spent a lot of time last week kind of comparing Luke, what it looks like, what his writings look like, his introduction to Acts, and the similarities between the two. We've talked about that some. And so tonight, if we. Stack on top of one another. That's what we've done. Luke 24, and we've got the last 10 verses of that on the left side, on the left column. And on the right side, we have the first 11 verses of the book of Acts. What you're going to see is they almost overlap perfectly in the sense of the content. They're covering the same amount of things. So if you think you're writing a story that's broken into two parts, you're going to, in the second part, kind of pick up where you left off. And that's what they're doing here. And so we've got this next to one another. And what I've tried to do with these. Colors is color-coded based on it um, re-saying in a different verbiage and giving more detail in the book of Acts where the story begins here. So if you look at the red, I'm going to just read the right side because we're going through the book of Acts, But and I'm sure I'll reference the left, left side quite a bit, but the left side is saying the same thing. He's just finishing that book, whereas he's beginning in the book of Acts this book. So he says, The former treaty have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. We talked about Theophilus last week, so we're not going to hit on that again tonight. Um, So then in verse 2 he says, "...until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God." Okay, so if you'll go to page two, our first bullet points really deals with all that red, both in Acts and in the book of Luke that's relapsed. So one thing I want to point out to you that the word Pentecost means 50. Okay, so this celebration of Pentecost was 50 days after what? You want me to take a guess? Correct, the Passover. So we can really get a timeline here of what's going on. The Passover occurs, and Jesus dies on the Passover, right? That's part of the symbolism of the Passover. That's part of the beauty of providence, is that thousands of years earlier, whenever the Passover was instituted there in Egypt, if you remember the ten plagues, the tenth plague is the Passover, where they're passing out of Egypt the firstborn son, the land they sacrificed, they put the blood on the doorpost, all of that. They were supposed to celebrate that. When it was instituted, they said, do this every year so your kids will ask the question, what does this all symbolize? And they were supposed to tell them about what happened in Egypt and their deliverance. That was going to happen for 1,500 years until the truer Passover. right? Because that lamb being delivered being Uh, the means by which they were delivered out of Egyptian bondage was a symbol of sinners being delivered from sin. And Christ is our Passover. So the Passover, more specifically at that time, the actual Passover is the Lamb. It's not the feast, it's the Lamb itself. So Jesus is our Passover. And so that takes place, and then we know Jesus was in... Laid in the tomb, for three days, he rose again. And then we have at the end of each of the Gospels different appearances of Jesus. And it makes that reference here, that he was displayed himself alive, this is verse 3, after his passion by many infallible proofs. And so we learn about, in Luke, what occurs right before the text that we put on the left side of the page, if you remember the men on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus begins to talk with them as they begin to walk. And they said, have you not heard what happened in Jerusalem? It was a very well-known thing. That's one occurrence where Jesus appeared. And then remember, they wanted him to go along with them further. And then finally their eyes are open and he disappears. And it tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he appeared to, what was it, 400? I didn't look that up. Was it three or 400? Something like that. That he appeared to hundreds of people after his resurrection. And so this is what Luke is referencing and then he stayed with the apostles and he taught for 40 days. So the Passover, three days, his resurrection. And then he teaches them for 40 days. So now we're at day 43. Pentecost is on day 50. So we can... And I had never put this together before until this week or last week. So this we can essentially know when he told them to go to Jerusalem and pray and wait for the descending of the Holy Spirit, it was about a week, roughly. Okay, And so, then it tells us here in the end of verse 3, so he taught them, being seen of them 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, if you go over to the left side of the page of Luke, it tells us some of the things that He taught them, written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and in the Psalms. Then opened He their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures. Now remember at this time, the Scriptures was not the New Testament. It's only the Old Testament. And so, I bring this up because as we go through the book of Acts, there's an important consideration that we want to make. Just a week prior to this, Jesus is telling them, I'm going to go into Jerusalem I'm going to be persecuted by the chief priest. I'm going to be put to death and crucified. And they don't get it. He dies, and they don't get his resurrection. They're downtrodden and they're heartbroken. Nothing. and So he has taught them explicitly throughout his life about what's going to happen. They didn't comprehend it. The prophecies all through the Old Testament, you hear them preached on frequently, have your whole life. There is so much rich prophecy about who the Messiah is going to be, how he's going to uh, live, how, what he's going to look like, the actions that are going to take place. None of that did they comprehend. And then when we get into the book of Acts, and we begin to look at Peter's sermon on Acts 2, we look at Peter defending himself in Acts 3 after healing the man, and that's Acts 3 and Acts 4. When we go to Stephen, preaching to those that ended up killing him. When we go, we can go step through the scriptures and suddenly, and we'll, we'll bring this up as we go through this, They're pulling out what I would say are these random Old Testament scriptures and then showing how Christ fulfilled that. And they're proving to those people Jesus was the Messiah. So then the question asks, how do you go from not knowing any of that when Jesus is alive and then suddenly when you start preaching, that's what you're preaching? It tells us right here. Jesus spent 40 days with them, opening the scriptures and explaining Here's what the law points to. Here's what the prophets point to. I fulfilled all of that. And so that, to me, helps to inform us where they came so advanced so quickly is right here as this reveals it to us in uh, the red letters there on Acts and that it references also in Luke. Um, And so let's see here. Now, now I want to go back. For those of you that were with us in the Gospel of John study... John 16, verse 12. And so this is in the first bullet point on the second page. Right after the, the sub-bullet points where it says, To whom also he showed. That next portion right there. It says, Jesus told his disciples. Remember this statement? Because we spent a lot of time talking about this. Or some time talking about it. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Well he told them. This is like a week ago. And now he's with them. And there's been so much that have occurred, now they can understand it. Now, to me, that's, a, that's an, a point of application to us. There are some questions that we want to know the answers to that at this very moment in our life, we cannot handle and comprehend the answer to it. And so things in our life must occur, and we don't even know what they are. Revelation to our heart and eyes must first come. Maybe we're not mature enough to handle the answers. Maybe if God explained it to us, we would not have the capacity to even understand it. But to me, this is a, a combining these two things is a point of application for me. Lord, not only do I want to understand what you want me to understand, but I want to understand it when I can handle understanding it. And perhaps many of you, especially you older Christians that have been in this walk for a while, can say there have been questions both from a personal vantage point about my own life that I could not understand and there's also things about the Scriptures that hid themselves from me for decades and then suddenly I understood them and now I know that it was God being compassionate to not only reveal it to me, but to reveal it to me when He did reveal it to me. This was about a week had to pass. Now, not to deceive you about John 16, because he later on goes in to say, in verse 13, that he'll send the Spirit to reveal it to us. And that's about to happen too. Right? And so, uh, I wanted to bring that up because we talked about that in John, and it seems to reach a part of its fulfillment uh, right here. And so, um, let's look at the blue portion. I'll go through a couple portions, and then I'll give you an opportunity to make some comments here. And so, uh, let's see... Oh, I'm sorry the green portion of it verse 4 in Acts 1. So go back to your first page, verse 4, Acts 1. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not or, excuse me, you should be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And so go ahead and go to the green portion of your commentary here in verse 3. So I'm just going to read part of this because I want to try to get through some of this a little quickly. It says this, Before they go to anyone or say anything, Jesus instructs them to go to Jerusalem and wait until they are, quote, endued with power from on high. John the Baptist foretold of this occurrence at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he said, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water." But one mightier than I come, at the latches of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Pentecost is both a memorial and pattern for our consideration. The inaugural manifestation of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was going to jumpstart the spread of the gospel and multiplication of the church in a supernatural fashion which was prophesied about in the Old Testament, and never surpassed in the church age. However, Jesus' instruction to go to the whole world with the gospel, but wait for the unction and direction of the Holy Spirit, serve as a necessary pattern for Christians today to follow. Okay, so I I may do a poor job explaining this, but... The day of Pentecost. What I'm trying to say is this functions in a twofold fashion. Number one, it's a one-time event which occurred in human history that will never be duplicated. How do we know that? Because the Old Testament over and over prophesies about that day. When and at that time, I don't even think the prophets exactly know what does that mean. When John the Baptist said it, this is my opinion. I don't think he had any idea what the baptism of the Holy Spirit truly meant. Okay? Now you say, okay, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Because it is going to be a key part of understanding the book of Acts. So, what does the word baptism mean? Immersion. Submerged. So, if you think of the Holy Spirit's manifestation and power in degrees... You all know what that means. There's some times where you can be in the house of the Lord and you can feel just a quiet, meek, sweet spirit. There's other times where conviction is powerful. And you can probably think back to landmarks in your life where the Holy Spirit is coming in power. So this is saying you're going to be immersed with it, with Him not it, with Him. So in other words, the Holy Spirit is going to descend in a way where He is all that is there. I don't know how else to emphasize the extent to which the Holy... And we're going to see that when we get into chapter 2. I don't want to get too far into the baptism of the Holy Spirit because chapter 2, this is describing it, that's going to be seeing the effects of what that means. And so we'll jump into that a little more specifically then. But I want to point out John has predicted this. So in one sense, it's a... And I said it was the inaugural manifestation. So think of the inauguration of the president. He comes, and this is his first um, profound revelation to the world. I am the president. And so, it's not that the Holy Spirit was not around before. Just like the president is alive before He becomes President. But now, it is the age where He is in power, in essence. He's the one through which the church and the world has our primary access to God, is through the Holy Spirit. And the day of Pentecost is this memorial for us as a church to look back on and say, that is when the age of the Holy Spirit began. Now, up to this point... These people cannot, even when Jesus is saying this to them right here, they have no, I don't believe, concept because they had God walking with them telling them what to do. So when they were led to do things, it's because Jesus said, hey, go do that. He said, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. That's what he says in John 16, right? And So Acts 2 is going to be this inauguration of the age of the Holy Spirit that we're still living in today, where we obviously as a church and as a a denomination, I would see that's a key tenet of our beliefs that differentiates us from other denominations. We believe the Holy Spirit is a person that speaks to our heart, but furthermore, steps into our lives and has power to cause and prevent things, to speak things. And so, In one sense, it's a memorial, but then the other sense that we have here, that I've tried to bring forward in this outline at least, is that there's a pattern that is revealed here that would be wise of us to to follow. So, when I go back to my office and I'm studying, and then all of a sudden, I have this, the Holy Spirit reveals to me what I need to preach on. There are times I want to do it right then and right there. Like the enthusiasm when the Lord has shown me something is so real that I just want to... And sometimes, accidentally, I'll get into a personal conversation with somebody and I'm like, sorry, it's got to come out, right? Because there's such an enthusiasm that comes. I've seen young Christians, and perhaps you were one of them, perhaps you know people are like this, that when they get saved... It's like they just can't help themselves. And they just start going and telling everybody. I've told the story before. My sister had a boyfriend who came to church, got saved, and he was the quarterback of the football team. Big group of guys. He, he was a jock. And the next day he goes to school, and him and his buddies were not the highest moral caliber all the time. The next day he comes in and genuinely says, you guys are all going to hell. Right? <laughs> Whoa. Now, again, that had to be tempered, but I think we can all understand to a degree something had happened to him. And that revelation was so life-changing that there was this urge of his own accord, of his own zeal, to go do God's work. And so here Jesus taught them for 40 days, and he says, go to the world. But wait before you go. Wait for what? For the Holy Spirit. And so in one sense, Pentecost is this isolated event that will never occur again. But in another sense, we see this pattern by which we also should follow. When you have people in your lives and I have people in my lives and we have people in the church and we're sitting in there and the gospel is being preached and you think by your own human eyes, look, this person looks convicted. Don't go to them because you think that. But if the Holy Spirit compels you, you better. If you have people in your life, what we need to pray is less for the right words and more for the unction of the Holy Spirit. Because it's not by words which people are going to be brought to Christ, it's by the power of of the Holy Spirit. And very few words under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit will be much more effective than 10,000 words that are true and right, but lack His power. Because... To dwell on this point for just a minute, there is a he has a power. Now what does exactly that mean? That means I think of it, there's a, there's a Greek word that is the root of the word that we use for dynamite. <clears throat> okay? My words can lack any power. So that think of it as as I'm giving them to you, they're not gonna. Explode. They're not. They're not going to have an effect inside of you. But if the words that God gives to me are then, how um, do I don't want to say this? Infused with the Holy Spirit's power, when they receive those words, there's going to be an explosion. There's going to be a power. Is what I'm trying to say. Not necessarily just an explosion. I know there's multiple ways you could express that. So. To me also, here in this green portion, my point is that we have a pattern as well as an actual historical event that will never be duplicated. Somebody have a question or a comment about the red or the green that we have on the, on the portion in Acts? Anybody? Alright, let's look at the, um, verse 6. So on page number 1, verse 6. Says this, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So you'll notice there, there's no necessary equivalent to that in Luke. That other black portion in Luke is not meant to um, connect to that. And so we have a very interesting thing. And here's the part that I'd like to to get in about verse 6. Their minds are still thinking naturally and dwelling upon that which consumed natural Israel. When is our kingdom coming back? And what they're referring to is like an actual kingdom. A national kingdom. And Jesus' words are pretty insightful. It's none of your business, is his answer. It's none of your business. Go preach the gospel. Now, to go back to a point we made a moment ago, there are some things that we want to know the answer to, and they can be things about why God allowed things to happen in our lives. They can be things about Scripture that God has hidden from us. And there may be a point, as we said earlier, where God's saying, you know what, I'm going to show you someday. You're just not ready for it. And then there are things like this. It's none of your business why I do what I do. Yes, it may be about your life. It may be about the things that affected your life. But you knowing is not necessary. And actually, you knowing can be a hurdle to faith. Because there is a sense to which we We think we control what we know. But when we don't know something and we trust God anyway, so if there's been terrible situations unfold in your life and you're desperately and frantically trying to grasp, why did this happen, God? Maybe God doesn't want you to know because you need to have faith in Him and trust. You know what? God did that for a reason. I know His character. So he doesn't owe me an explanation. Now that's on the personal application side of it, and there are things that we could bring about out of the scriptures. But he says here is not for you know the times of the season in which the father has put in his own power. But and then he goes right back to the gospel. And here's what I'll say about this: there is a hierarchy of importance of what we need to tell the world about the Bible. And here's what I mean. When I worked at the high school, I was surrounded by people who their worldview was nothing like mine. Most of them were not, most of the teachers, there was about 10 of us in our department. Most of them were not Christians. Had a Mormon, an atheist. None of them were what you would consider Orthodox Christians. And I had to learn the hard way what conversations to jump into. Because early on, when I would hear something that was promoted that I didn't agree with, I just would throw my words into the discussion, and I began to notice that that pushed people away, that that caused people to stigmatize me a certain way, that they think from that point on that I think these things that truthfully the media projects about people who believe certain things that we believe. And so in a sense, I would offend people and drive them away over things that I didn't really want to close their mind over gay marriage. Like that's not the hill I want to die on. What is the hill that I want to die on? The gospel. And so here, it seems like Jesus, when he is commissioning us to go spread the word of the gospel, this is what's always been strange to me when you see TV preachers and they have these huge charts charting the end times. I've just thought, like, you have this opportunity to spread the gospel to the whole world, and you're on this TV, and you have no idea who's watching, and you think that on the hierarchy of level of importance of what should be broadcast to the world, it's that? Like, maybe in the confines of a Bible study, yeah, we could do that. This seems to be emphatically Jesus saying, go tell the world the gospel. And so it would be wise of us to say, what are the core tenets of the gospel? I don't necessarily think that the end times is a core tenet of the gospel. It's a part of the biblical truth. But if you believe me or don't believe me about the end times, that's not going to affect your salvation. What's going to affect your salvation is Jesus Christ. Repenting of your sins and putting faith in his son that he truly was the son of God. And so Jesus here is saying, it's not for you to know those things. Or in other words, think about this. They're about to go for the next seven chapters to all Jewish people, thousands and thousands of Jewish people. And so wouldn't you think that as a Jew going to Jews, I would be thrilled to go tell them, I found out the information about the kingdom that has been dormant for 700 years now. Like that would be something that would draw enthusiasm, that would draw people the same way today, that if I can say in 2029 on December 8th, God's coming back. And suddenly, I have an audience. God does not give them that ammunition. He says, take the gospel. Because that's what they need to know. And so, this kind of goes to an underlying point for you if you've said, and we'll get to this later in the lesson outline at some point, what do I study in the Bible? Well, the gospel like the core tenets of the gospel. And if you don't know how to do that, just stay in the gospels and learn everything you can about the... I'm not saying you can't broaden that. I'm just saying that expresses the gospel message. And if you're a master of anything in the Bible, you want it to be Jesus. You want it to be understanding how people come to life, find life in Him. And it seems to me like that's what Jesus is... Emphasizing again, make this point of differentiation. I'm not saying we don't study those things, but is it our place of emphasis? Like, I want our church to be known as Jesus preachers, that's what people know us as. Not, well, if you take a sip of alcohol, you're an awful person, and yet, very often by the emphasis that the minister gives first usually, and the members emphasize, sometimes that can be unintentionally the projection that people would define that by. So, I think verse 6, and then we'll, we'll go one more here and give you an opportunity to comment about these two things. So, the rest of verse 8 is a place that I think is, is thematic for the rest of the book of Acts. So, verse 8 says this, But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And so go ahead and go to your next page, page two. So that verse lays out how the gospel unfolds in the book of Acts. I think it's a very wise pattern for Christians to be aware of in their own lives. Okay? Okay. So let's just read this blue part real quick. The aim of Jesus' ministry during his lifetime was to share salvation with those who were eagerly waiting for him, i.e. the Jews. After his ascension, the church was to continue his ministry, but broaden the audience to, quote, all people everywhere. That's a direct quote from Acts 17.30 in reference to Isaiah. Thankfully, Jesus provides an evangelistic pattern which we can use to prioritize such a monstrous responsibility. Luke documents the use of this same pattern throughout the book of Acts. We begin spreading the gospel at home, literally. Now this, well, I'll just keep reading this first sub-bullet point. Those nearest to us. In this case, the apostles were to begin with the Jews, especially those in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Those men and women had the most intimate knowledge of Jesus since they were the ones that heard his preaching, saw his miracles, and crucified him. And so notice in the text when Jesus is telling them, giving them a commission, you shall be witnesses unto me in, begins Jerusalem. So right where they're at, the epicenter of Jesus' ministry in many ways, the fulfillment of the gospel, his death, burial, resurrection, happening in Jerusalem. So, where do we, as Christians, where does our evangelism begin? Literally in your house, those closest to you. I've often seen very effective evangelist ministers spend their whole life evangelizing everybody else and neglect to evangelize their own children. And that's a warning to us. My job, your job, no matter what we've been commissioned to do, is not to forsake those closest to us to go far away. There is something um, radically adventurous about the idea of going on a mission trip and and sensationalized. And, and sometimes I think people wrongly and unintentionally play into that urge. Like, Let's go on the mission field. Let's go do this. But as we're going to see through the book of Acts, in one sense there is an excitement, and in another sense it's a grind like you wouldn't believe. My son's namesake, I refer to him often, Adoniram Iron Judson, seven years before his first convert. So I mean, imagine you're in this heathen land, and you're struggling to learn the language and year after year after year after year, and there's no fruit of your labor. Like just how hard that would be. And I think, point being, I think people often sensationalize that. Jesus gives us a pattern. Start at home. And that's not just, although it includes me verbally telling my kids the gospel. It's me living the gospel in front of them. That they see my character. That they see me repent of my sins. That they see the things which I say that I believe embodied in their father and in their mother. And when it's not, that I go through the right process in order to make things right. If you want to win your kids, live like Christ, live like the Lord. That's your pattern. Man or woman. Doesn't matter what your role is. Live like Christ in front of them. And as the opportunity... So that's number one. And then talk to them. Like there has become a taboo at times, I think, what I witnessed growing up, very religious, godly, saved people that had this difficulty like sitting at the foot of their kid's bed and just asking them about their life and and. Their feelings about the Lord and and pouring into them verbally the gospel. We need to create a culture in our home where we're doing that. Where the gospel is so part of who we are and governs so much of us that when we're talking about the deep life decisions that our children are making, it's not, what do you want to do with your life? Like, Come on, people, like we're talking to an 18-year-old. They don't know. Why are you asking them? And even if they did know what they wanted to do, who cares what they want to do? Their life isn't about them. It's about the Lord. And so, here's a better question. What is the Lord telling you you need to do? Like, in those most intimate settings if they see you are even in the deepest layered questions you talk to them about bringing in the truth. That's going to resound with them a lot more than me wailing away every single Sunday trying to reach them. But if you amen me every Sunday and shout hallelujah and then when it comes to them making the deepest decisions of their life, you never put it like that then here's what their mind is going to do. There's the compartment church. Let's keep it there. And you go and you pretend and you do all these things and you might even care a lot about it. But when it comes to the important things, well, no, then you got to get serious. No, that's not the way it is. And so this pattern extrapolated is we begin at home. Like I don't take my preacher hat off. And it's not that I'm just preaching at my kids all the time. This is who I am. And if we're going to talk about your future, the only thing that matters is this. And I want to encourage you, especially if you have young kids and you have not broken that mold or perhaps you've let the ice thicken, apologize to them. Like, hey, I should have been doing this a long time ago. Like there's there's a necessity of me opening my Bible with my kid and teaching them, and there's just a necessity in me in conversation daily. This is just how our conversation at home goes. And can you go overboard shoving things down there? Absolutely. I'm not saying. Listen, I played video games with my kids at 5:30 this this evening. Okay, like there's a taking being a parent, having fun, but. If we want to see this thing that we believe perpetuated, it begins at home. It begins with, if you have a lost spouse, that can be a tough, listen, that can be tough. Right? Like I have, I, uh, there's an old lady that comes to mind, that I used to pastor, and her husband was, he resisted it. She got saved later in life. And much of her and I's conversation revolved around, how can I talk to my husband? Right? Um, and so I'm not saying those things are simplistic and easy, but they're necessary. Absolutely necessary. It begins in the home. Now, not so coincidentally with these people, one of the reasons it begins in the home is because these people are the most intimately acquainted with the truth. So they should recognize it. Like if I was to go and when I worked to my atheist friend and start springing on him the gospel, it's going to be a shock to him. It's not a shock to Judson. Like he's aware of Jesus. Jesus. He's aware of the principles vaguely of the truth. Right? And so is this um, everybody's situation? No, but I think Jesus sets a precedent. Okay? There's a difference in a command and a precedent. This is a pattern that we can follow when we can. Now, we'll get to later some exceptions to that. I want to pause there for a moment. Somebody have a comment or a thought about that? Something you want to express about any of these things here? Okay, so begins in Jerusalem. We know that was a city. It spins to Judea, the province. Now remember, Jesus ministered in Judea. We talked about that in John. So likely the people in Judea, many of them did not know yet about His crucifixion and death, resurrection, alleged resurrection to them. But they knew of Him. Because remember, He goes to town to town and everybody goes to Him. And He leaves some cities and everybody's healed. And so, this is the next layer of people that are familiar with Jesus. And then, if you'll turn your page to page 3, he goes to the Samaritans. So let's just read this thing about the Samaritans real quick. The apostles were then to do something which at one time would have been considered unimaginable to Jewish people, extend their ministry to the Samaritans. These, quote, unclean people were ethnically mixed between Jews and Gentiles, and had only a partial understanding of the Old Testament conception of the Messiah. So we make a reference there John 4.25. Who's speaking in John 4.25? Do I remember? What's that? The woman of the well, right? Remember, she's saying, you know, we've heard when the Messiah comes that he'll X, Y, Z. Okay? So we know by her account, she's a Samaritan, and she talked about the Messiah and she said, he'll tell us all things. And remember verse 26, Jesus says, the one who is speaking to you is he, right? So in John 4, 25 alone, if we didn't have any of the history, we know that the Samaritans are familiar to some degree with the concepts found in Judaism. We just don't know how extensive Their religion, speaking of the Samaritans, was a blasphemous blend of Old Testament teaching. So some of it's rooted in the Bible. Some of it's in Jewish tradition. So it's not Bible, but it's just things that the Jews adopted along the way that honestly became impediments to the truth. And then thirdly, finally, it became, and pagan rituals. They were a contaminated people who were separated from Jews throughout the Old Testament. We give you a couple examples where Samaritans appear and there's a distinction. If you remember in Nehemiah, they want to come help build the wall. And Nehemiah says, no, you have no part in this. And then for four chapters, they're trying to sabotage the building of the wall. Okay, So that's the history of Jews and Samaritans. And so this statement right here would... If we're looking at the state and the command Jesus gives to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and the Samaritans, they'd have said, Jerusalem, all right, let's go. Judea, all right, let's go. Samaria, whoa, 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 whoa. And they probably would have stopped their ears at Samaria. Oh, and we go to Samaria? Because remember, even when the apostles, when Jesus was ministering to the woman at the well, they came to him and said, what are you doing? Why are you talking to her? Right? So now he's saying, go to them. You're not... So you're not permitted to go to them. You're commanded to go to them. And then finally, the next group is obviously the Gentiles. Finally, the church has been sent to the uttermost parts of the earth to tell all people everywhere about Jesus. One would assume that the Gentile people would be the most difficult to reach because they knew the least about the Jewish conception of God. The oracles of God, that's a reference from Romans 2, had not been given to them, nor had many of the prophets been sent to them. Nonetheless, many of the Gentile people received the gospel, whereas those who should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah, the Jews, largely rejected him. So here's a question. I figured up to this point you wouldn't be talking, so I'm going to ask a question. Why do you think that people furthest from understanding the truth are often the quickest to receive the gospel? So no doubt, if you've been in church at any time, and maybe you're one of these no affiliation with God for a good part of your life. You heard the gospel. And as we've seen throughout my whole life, sometimes kids brought up in church, I being one of them sought the Lord and sought the Lord and sought the Lord. And there was some stumbling, but I don't know what it was. The words did not resonate with me as much. And then I can remember my sister had a lot of boyfriends. My sister's boyfriend's coming in, right? And hearing the gospel and it's like three weeks in and they're saved. And the fruit was there that they were saved. And so my question to you is: Why do you think that is? Why do you think often people the furthest from understanding the truth are often the quickest to receive it? Explain what you mean. So many concepts of knowing the Old Testament, the New Testament—it's just overwhelming. I think knowing all these different ways how people got saved through the you know, New Testament Old Testament and then someone someone's never heard it it's just like wow I mean, it, it sounds so easy and just I mean that's all you have to do I mean mm-hmm. and it's so sometimes the continuous exposure confuses confuses I think okay. does, even in a, a safe person is like walk sometimes you know there's Draw from so many different ways. You're like, well, what am I supposed to do besides saying, "Lord, what should I do?" Mm-hmm. I think it's it's like a modern day judaizer. It's like a there's so much legalism in it. Okay. You hear that over and over, it's perpetuated. It's almost like a legalistic judaizer like getting past that. What is salvation? So, do you think when you say a judaizer, when I'm interpreting, is like? We're often speaking truth without the Holy Spirit. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. not that the information is. Yeah, it's. So information may be there, mm-hmm. but it's, yeah, it's more of. Yeah. And so I think this, and I, I agree with both of what you said, and I especially want to dwell on this for a minute, is that's why it's imperative we walk in the Spirit. Because if the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, That means when the gospel is being portrayed in your Sunday school class with five kids, they've got to know that it's more than a set of facts that you arrange in an accurate order. Like, teaching the Bible and the truth is not meant to reveal facts or even doctrine. It's meant to reveal God by God. And so... When we're speaking these things, I would agree. Can it become in the lost person's mind if we're dead, in a sense, in our delivery, there's no spirit in it, there's no spiritual unction in preparation for it, and then we just say, okay, well, this is what we believe, and this is what the Sunday School literature says, and, you know, we go. That's how they're going to interpret it. But if it's delivered as the power of God unto salvation... And the Holy Spirit is infusing it. Now, I wish I could say every time that I preach that I have the infusion of the Holy Spirit in an overwhelming way. I don't. I lament that greatly. And you won't either. But that's our aim, is Lord. Because otherwise, I agree. It just becomes, and I've heard preachers my whole life where I'm like, dude, do you have any spirit at all in you? Like, I can't refute what you're saying. But where is the life? Where is the gripping in you, let alone me in the audience? And so I think that's a good point, that they become numb to what they're hearing. Somebody else have a thought? Again, the question, why so many people from the outside are so quick often to receive the message? I think sometimes uh, people from the outside... Don't have all the noise, and they see the simplicity of the gospel message. We take, and I think this kind of thing should concern us greatly because I've seen it on and all. We take this simple, this simple message that we're supposed to take to everybody, and we—it's just like they were saying—we lay all this other stuff on top. Of mm-hmm. You were talking about the Jewish traditions became things mm-hmm. that became stumbling blocks mm-hmm. to the ambassador. Sermon on the Mount. I think mm-hmm. it's something that we we really need to be careful about. The whole Bible points to Jesus. Mm-hmm. But there's so many times, how many things have we heard? How many lessons have we heard or sermons that they take some of these scriptures and they don't point to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a person comes in, they hear it, and they see Jesus. Mm-hmm. Whereas Absolutely. And I think I think an additional component of this is, you know, the Jews thought they were good. That's right. That's the so yeah. shocked. Absolutely. When he said your, your, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and, and, and scribes. And so is there a possibility that our kids think they're pretty good? Like they're pretty good kids. Whereas if I've been going and living a sinful life and I mean, I've been deep in sin and I come and I hear the gospel, I don't have to convince somebody who's been out in the world that they're a sinner. I remember Harvey Ambrose saying that at one of our revivals, like he said, nobody had to convince me that I was a sinner. I knew I was the most wretched man on the face of the planet. And that gripped me when he said that because he'd only been into church one other time in his whole life. He'd been in a true church under the sound of the gospel. And so, whereas I think very often the It's like we're afraid to dampen their self esteem. But listen, kids are not inherently good. They're not. Not even a little bit. Like they're wicked sinners. Period. Destined for damnation. That's not my opinion. That's what God said, and that's what He's going to do, right? And so, there's like a humorous component to it, but in some ways, it shouldn't be. Like that is what their crea- That's what their nature is altogether. And sometimes in this moralistic mindset that we can get, we're, you know, they're not that. So are we first having to convince them they need a savior? Okay, like they're not that bad. First of all, they can think that in their minds. And then secondly, we give them everything they need. So what do they need to be saved from? Like they got it all. And so I think very often what I've seen in my own experience, I'm sure you have too, people from the outside like, I got nothing and I know I'm wicked. And then they hear about this man, this God that loves them and will save them and will change them. And they're like, sign me up. Uh, yeah, I'll give up all that sin. I just want that. Right? And so, I think that's, that's another reason why, even in this, and what we're going to see through Acts, and this is going to be our last sub-bullet point here, now this becomes the pattern of Acts. Okay, so Acts 1-7, through 7, as we go through it, Peter, primarily, is ministering to Jews. Now when we get to the latter part of Acts, and I'm sure we'll point this out when we get there. When Paul is going into cities, where does he start? The synagogue. Or the Jewish church. We can imagine it, right? He goes to them, and in one place he's an opening and alleging that Jesus is the Christ. So he's going to them first, and then he'd go into these cities a lot of times, and they'd say, nope. And he'd say, okay, now I'm going to go to these others that are in the community of the Gentiles. So We've got here in that last sub bullet point in blue, he prescribes this pattern to us, going to Samaria, Judea, excuse me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the world, and then Acts is organized that way. One through seven, he's going to the Jews. He starts in Jerusalem, he expands in Judea. Chapter eight comes. So if you remember, chapter six, they ordained deacons, they're in Jerusalem. Chapter seven, Stephen preaches. He's put to death, and at the, it's either the end of chapter 7 or the beginning of chapter 8, it says that he is persecuted, he's put to death, and then the church does what? They scatter everywhere. Okay. Now, in chapter 6, stay with me, I know this is kind of confusing, one of the seven men ordained as a deacon is Philip. Philip reappears in chapter 8. Okay. He goes to the Samaritans. Philip the Evangelist, he's called. And they see this great revival in chapter 8 amongst the Samaritans. So it starts with the Jews 1-7. through seven. Chapter 8, he goes to the Samaritans. Even by the end of that chapter, we just get a little bit taste of going to the Gentiles. Who else did Philip go to at the end of 8? The Ethiopian eunuch, right? Who's gone to Jerusalem. And I'm kind of stealing some of the joy later. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to wait. Okay? So... And then we fast forward to 10, and we're to the Gentiles. And who is it that goes to whom? What's that? Who goes to the Gentiles? Who's the first person? What's that? Peter to Cornelius, right? So we got the man on the household. He's praying, that whole situation we'll talk about. So my point of bringing all that up is he prescribes it to us. And then he fills out that pattern through the book of Acts. Right? And then, once the ministry of Peter finishes in chapter 12, Paul picks up in 13, and essentially it's Gentiles the rest of the way. Right? And so, I think if we go back to the very first page, and I know I've been jumping around a lot tonight, that blue portion, this is a twofold thing. Number one, it's a pattern for us. And number two, it's a summary of the way the book of Acts is organized and its evangelistic efforts. Okay, um, And then let's finish the orange and we'll call it a night. We're, we're going to go just a few minutes over tonight. Uh, let's, but I want to get the orange part in here, this, this first bracket. Uh, so verse 9 in Acts 1, it says this, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said you men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go. And so if you'll go to the bottom of page three where we got the commentary associated with that, um, here's just a few thoughts about it. It says this, Following the last instruction Jesus gives to his apostles, he begins to ascend into the sky and disappears from their sight. Now, i got to pause for a moment because like, that's such a casual thing that we read, but think of how miraculous that would have been. Like, Jesus has a perfected body, a resurrected body. So me and you have never seen anything like that before. He's teaching them for 40 days, and his appearance is altogether different than it had even been in his lifetime when he, when he lived. And he's teaching them, and he goes... To the Mount of Olivet, it says in Luke. If we would have read that other portion, we would have seen that happen on the Mount of Olivet. So this is the same place where uh, Matthew 24 and 25, when he's teaching them about the end times. That's the same location that Jesus is into. Um, Gethsemane is in Olivet. This is about three quarters of a mile from Jerusalem. How do we know that? Because it was a Sabbath day journey. A Sabbath day's journey is, this is how far you can walk without breaking the law of working. About 2,000 kilometers. Speak American, right? Not kilometers. So so we have about three quarters of a mile-ish that he is distance. Jerusalem is in sight. And so he's there, he's teaching them. Now, I'm not going to get off on the tangent about things that Jesus does on the mountain all the time. These mountains in Jerusalem, I think, have some symbolism associated with them too. Okay? He's teaching them. He's done. And then all of a sudden, his feet just start to come off the ground. Like, I don't know. It's just cool for me to think about. And then he just keeps ascending and he keeps ascending. And he's just this little speck. And then he's just gone. And so what do they do? right? Like they just stare. Like it's just, and I love bringing that out because like as Christians who have heard that our whole lives, it just doesn't sound that, that's, that's a miracle that he does that. And then they're just gazing. It's just, are they gazing at all? Are they waiting for him to come right back down? Like what are they doing? And then these angels appear and I just love their response because it's so indicative of of, of, and we talked about this in the Gospels of John like the Gospel of John study like urging them but understanding why they're doing what they're doing like why are you standing here gazing this same Jesus who's gone up he's told you he's going to come back the same way that he left so to me that points to how's he coming back he went up that way guess what he's coming back that way why stand your gaze? The same Jesus going up among you um, shall so come in a like manner. And so, essentially, like, okay, he went, he's coming back. Now go do what he told you to do. <laughs> and so, to me, it's also this beautiful picture of like, as Christians, when we get on the mountain and we see Christ in a way we've never seen him, and he is ascending before our eyes, and we are in awe of who he is. And very often. They, people just want to stay there and dwell in heavenly places. And there's a, there, there's, a, there's a utility in God bringing us this place. And there's a utility in God showing us these things. But in the end, we got to stop gazing into the heaven and go tell people about Jesus. Like, the way my mind works, I can't spend much time thinking about heaven. Because I'll, I'll think about it when I'm there. I'll appreciate it when I'm there. But until then, I want to do what He said. I want everybody to come with me and then I'll walk with them and we'll gaze together right, at all the things that are there. But I think sometimes Christians can become mesmerized with the blessing which is ours rather than burdened by the commission which is ours. The blessing we'll one day inherit. So just leave it to one day. The commission is here and now. And so, but again, I just see the angel's response here. It's not like he's rebuking. He just kind of saying like, okay guys, come on, let's go. Let's go, right? And I think that's the appropriate gentle response to us when we temporarily do that. It's like, okay, you've enjoyed the mountaintop. That's good. But the sinners are in the valley. So go back down. And if you're like me, sometimes... I trudged down that mountain, <laughs> right? Like always oh, like, are you sure I can't spend just a little longer up there? And so um, I think we've covered everything on those, those first four pages, that first section of, um, of those first 11 verses. The next section in 12 through 26 should go really quick because we're talking about uh, replacing Judas. And there's a couple prophecies we'll get into about that, but it shouldn't take long next week. So I'm going to try to have Chapter 2 for you next week, and I have no idea how long we'll be in Chapter 2 because there's a lot to unpack there. So it's likely a three-weeker going into Chapter 2 because um, there's just a lot to cover. So anybody got any comments or questions about anything in the lesson tonight? I told you about 10 minutes later than I intended.